Welcome to Return to Ease, the show where we talk about different ways to live with more intention. Each week, we will discuss different ways to learn how to nourish our mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Rachel Pecora. I'm a licensed massage therapist and a John F. Barnes trained myofascial release therapist. I am passionate about living an authentic life and want to help you return to ease. Welcome back to another episode of Return to Ease. Today, I have a special guest, Laura Weiner-Kaiser with us. Laura is a certified health coach and a certified life coach. She is also a personal trainer and a nutritionist, and she helps people enhance their relationship with their mind and body and helps them overcome obstacles to live their best lives. So I am excited to have you here with us, Laura. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am very excited and happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. We have a lot to talk about, probably. We could probably talk forever and ever. Um, So I really wanted to kind of dive into a little bit of your background and hear a little bit of your backstory and how you got started with um, your journey with um, coaching and, you know, the nutrition part. And then maybe we can talk about some mind-body connection things and um, get into some emotional eating, perhaps. That's cool with you. Okay. My motivation, I think, started when I was a kid. I was a very overweight kid. I was very athletic, but I loved sugar like so many other people. And um, amongst my athletic career, I ended up breaking nine bones. And every time you break a bone, people bring you sweets to make you feel better. So it was kind of like a repetitive cycle. And I grew up with this mindset that I was obese. And having broken nine bones, I knew my body would need some kind of tender, loving care throughout the years. And I really enjoyed helping people and just kind of being on my feet in general. So I went to college, I decided to become a fitness specialist under kinesiology major, and I loved it. Still boycotted nutrition for about five more years. I was like trying to prove that you could outwork out a bad diet. I am sad to say that that is untrue. And I failed like so many others, but it came to this point where like, I wasn't seeing the results I wanted. I wasn't giving my clients the results they wanted. And I was like, okay, it's time. And it kind of like that resistance in and of itself speaks so much to like what so many people deal with when it comes to learning about food is the comfort of what we've known and the awareness that if we learn other things, we can't be as blind to it. Um, And when I got my nutrition certification and started, that's when I kind of started coaching, but I didn't really know that was what coaching was. I thought that was just part of being a good trainer. And that's really when my career took off. My clients were getting unbelievable results. It was awesome, but all of it was kind of a diet. Like they could stick to the habits, they could adjust the eating, but then five, six months later, like they would gain it all back. And the analogy I always, I always went to is, you know, when you go to a nail salon, you walk out, your nails are painted. They don't then have you come back and unpaint them to then like, you know, and I felt like that's kind of what I was doing is I was helping people see like, these are the habits you can do this. This is what your body can look like, but it wasn't lasting results. And as someone who had like yin yanged up and down 20, 30, 40 pounds myself, I wanted lasting results as well. And my husband introduced me to podcast. I listened to one about mindset. I talked to one of my clients who I'd been working with for like eight years about it. And all of a sudden she started doing this one thing that we'd been working on for years. 
And I was like superstitious. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to mention it. And then after a month, I'm like, what, what gives like what's happening? Because it was that conversation. And it made me really open my eyes to where things start and how intricate we are and how we can't just focus on the food and the fitness to get the results. And that's when I kind of found out that coaching was an actual career and that I had kind of been doing it, got certified, started my own business. And that's kind of where it's led me. And I love how it kind of like tiered itself, like training, nutritionist, coach, because it was like, okay, it's a body. Okay. It's food. Nope. They got me again. It's the mind. So (laughs) I'm very grateful for my journey and I really do feel like I can actually deliver that result now. So yeah, that's my kind of backstory. Yeah, that's awesome. Because I think so many people that are in, you know, the helping profession, whatever that is, if it's, you know, a coach or a a personal trainer, or like for me, I'm in body work, I do massage therapy, myofascial release. We want to help people so badly. We're like trying to fix things and we want to help them get better and receive the results they want. But like, it really comes down to more than just like wanting it for them. Like there's a lot that goes into it. So having like a coaching is is helpful to kind of encompass all of those things that you, you have all this knowledge and you need to share it and you want to share it. Now you have like a a vessel to kind of get that message across. So that's, that's pretty helpful. It's, I mean, even my own challenges, like I was addicted to stress. I didn't understand what like kicking that was. I wouldn't even call it a stress addiction. It was through coaching that I learned like, no, my body is addicted to the cortisol and I'm making problems, even if there aren't problems to feel some type of normalcy, whether it was enjoyable or not, wasn't really what mattered. But if I didn't know what to expect when it came to kicking the stress addiction or like removing emotional eating, as an example, I would have continued to fail over and over and over. And what frustrates me is like, I feel like we're manipulated at every turn. Like the, whoever's putting out food pyramids or saying, this is what healthy is. It's complete crap. And, you know, you have people trying to get healthier and sabotaging themselves because they don't have the right information. So I feel very blessed to know this for my own growth, but also have platforms like this one and my own to just help people see and understand what the actual journey is. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Um, you mentioned the the stress addiction. What do you think that that, why do we do that? What is that like? Can you talk about that a little bit? I totally can. Um, <laughs> So most of us have some degree of it. It's, you know, if you would consider yourself a busyaholic, if yeah. people ask you how you are and you answer busy, chances are you're addicted to stress. And it's because of the unspoken belief that we have in culture. Busy means important. Busy means you're right. doing something. Busy means something positive about you. And if you're not busy, then people typically go to lazy, even though it's a scale. You don't just go from busy to lazy. Right. But that's how a lot of people think. And there's a negative connotation with lazy. So it's emotionally safer to put ourselves on the other continuum of being busy and stressed all the time, because then we feel some sense of worthiness or purpose or enoughness, so to speak. So like if we understand how our body works in terms of like hormones, it wants to regulate anything and everything. So 
you know, when you eat at certain times of a day, you your body regulates and you start to get hunger cravings around that same time. And the same is true with stress. So like the example I give to clients is I use weddings a lot. So people, when they plan weddings, tend to go a little cuckoo, myself included. And the stress is just like, oh, so overwhelming. And yeah. and they kind of regulate their body to a new stress level, a new busyaholic level. And when the wedding is over, they get that lack of cortisol. They get the lack of adrenaline. And you kind of hear about like the post-wedding blues, so to speak. Yeah. And within a month's time, new projects, new hobbies, new jobs, new fights, like they're creating ways to bring in cortisol, myself included. I became a coach right after I got married. Like it is our body's way of trying to regulate what it knows as safe and survivable. So what people don't understand is how freaking uncomfortable the change of it is because your brain, like if we think about how it works, right? Your beliefs create your thoughts, which create your feelings, which make you release hormones. And then we get homeostasis and that's how our body regulates. Now, if we try to implement change, homeostasis will seek threat. That's what it will interpret it as, which makes us feel something uncomfortable, which then makes us think uncomfortable thoughts, all with the intention of trying to provoke a regulating action. So for example, when I was trying to break my stress addiction, I tried to take a break in the middle of the day because I start work at 5 a.m. and I typically end at like 8 p.m. And I was like, that's a long day. So I started to take a break in the middle of the day and I felt a gravity. Like I felt like there were spiders crawling out of my skin. I felt like there was a gravity trying to pull me back to my office. I would sweat just sitting on a couch and I would hear thoughts like you're not doing enough. How are you going to be successful if you aren't working through all this? You have, Here's two hours that you could be getting stuff done. What are you thinking? Like it would be a really evil internal voice. But the gift of coaching was I knew that. I knew that that experience was the experience of change. And so I was able to hear those thoughts and be like, no, this is the discomfort of change. This is me teaching my body. It is safe and survivable to sit on a couch for an hour and not have to work, you know, 15, 16 hour days every single day. And it, it was uncomfortable. So, you know, I'd go for a walk or I'd meditate or I'd read, I'd have to like introduce different stimuli, but you know, after two weeks, it really became like a lot easier to bear. And after a month, I really was much better with it. And now when I feel that like urge to go back to work, I realize like, Mm, there's something I'm not managing well, and it's trying to pull me back into that old addiction. So long-winded answer, but does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's great information. I think we tend to fill our, our days with things to avoid an uncomfortable feeling, something we don't want to look at. And that can go for many different reasons. You know, I work with people that have chronic pain and chronic, you know, mystery pain, things like that. And sometimes it's just too much to think about what the real cause of the pain is or like what the the feelings are that are attached to the pain and, um, you know, all kinds of things. We just, we don't want to feel it because it's uncomfortable. It's an unfamiliar um, feeling because you know, as society, we're not used to feeling stuff. And that's just not a practiced um, 
it's just not practiced enough. And so there's this, like, let's just disconnect from everything, whether that's like scrolling through social media or watching TV or anything to distract ourselves from actually feeling what's underlying. And I think that that's, it's really foreign for a lot of us, you know, myself included. And it's a daily practice of like, all right, what am I actually feeling? (laughs) Let's like tune into this and like, like, am I trying to distract or am I trying to like actually make changes? I always feel like a weirdo when people are like, so how are you? And I'm like, hmm. Cause like, that's such a question that people are like, yeah, I'm good. How are you? They don't actually, and even when you and I jumped on here, like we, I just said, good. How are you? But yeah. I didn't, am I good? I don't know. Like I didn't even think about it. It was just like an instinctive response. So now like when I'm working with clients, I'll try to be like, how am I? I'm a little yeah. stressed or like, Overall, I'm pretty good. I got some stuff going on. And, but that pause, they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, yep. And I feel the obligation to explain, like, I'm just trying to use it as like a genuine check-in with myself, but you're right. It is a completely a daily practice, but I also think it is in a weird way, like the epidemic of our kind of lifetime, because like depression and anxiety has skyrocketed because we're so uncomfortable to deal with our uncomfortable emotions that we're just avoiding it, but that doesn't get rid of the energy of it. And so then we're just stuck with all this toxicity and we're wondering why we're so anxious or why we're so depressed. We're not dealing with it. And like, don't get me wrong. Like I don't have the worst story. I don't have the best story. Like I have struggled with suicide most of my life and unfortunately I had to get like really, really bad for me to be brave enough. And that is absolutely the word is brave and courageous enough to like, look at the uncomfortable emotions and look at the stuff that was making me feel like the answer was fleeing this world. And I'm so grateful in a weird twisted way that that's how it all played out for me because it opened my eyes to like the shadow that these emotions cast, which is so much bigger than the reality of it. Like when I used to cry, I used to like straight up panda, like my eyes would like puff out. I wouldn't be able to breathe. I'd get a huge migraine because I never let myself cry. And now when I feel like crying, I'm like a freaking movie star, like beautiful little tears streaming out. And it's like super controlled. I don't get a headache. I don't swell because I'm not resisting the energy that my body's trying to use to communicate with me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a fear. Uh, let me actually back up. Thank you for being brave enough to do that because that that's hard. It's very hard when we're going through challenging things to step out of ourselves and realize I need help. Like there's something beyond me. Like I need to, I need to be here. Like you have a message to share with people. And I think going through the hardest times really be, uh, makes you the best messenger because you can really be in the trenches with people. Like, I know how bad it is. It sucks on this, this bad side, you know, but there's like hope on the other side. So thank you for, you know, sticking with that. And um, yeah, you have a good story to share. I think that's beautiful. Um, Gosh, thank you for acknowledging it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree that the relatability is an important element because, you know, if you've never struggled and you're like, Oh, you're struggling with something huge. Here's a simple way to get out of it. I don't know if I would believe someone, um, right. but yes, thank you for acknowledging it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I kind of lost my train of thought, but I was kind of segueing into like the crying part. I used to do the same thing. I would 
never want to cry because crying was the worst feeling and emotion ever. For some reason, (laughs) it was just like so awful. If I cried, then I was just the worst, you know, and (laughs) I've learned that crying is just, just a feeling. It's just an emotion. It's not going to kill me, but it is, it's still hard to like allow myself to do that. But I've come to understand that it's safe to to allow that to happen so I do cry and I'll like I take a walk almost every morning and I just like connect with nature and I you know just listen and I feel and I use all my senses to kind of go on my walk and a lot of times I'm listening to a podcast and it always is like the podcast that I need to hear or the the song I need to hear at that moment and I'm just like walking crying like oh god I hope nobody walks by me they're gonna think I'm like having the worst day ever and I'm not I'm just like something's coming up and I've just decided like now is the time to let it go. So it's like like you said, isn't that kind of the problem? And you kind of started to hint at it. Like we're, and this is not a fault to our parents, but like when a baby cries, that's how the parent knows something's wrong. This isn't something we want to get rid of. It's how we learned or taught our parents to change our diapers or to feed us or all these things. But as we grow up, we are very conditioned that like, you can only cry in certain avenues. Like at a funeral, go for it. Weep your eyes out. It's totally fitting. At like a wedding, understandable, right? That's like happy tears, emotional tears, whatever. But like randomly in class, in the middle of a workout, like you name it. It's like, mm, that's not an acceptable emotion. If we actually think about that, like acceptable emotions get categorized into places that they're okay. No wonder we're all screwed up. That's, that is not humans. That is not how it is. Like right. we all have a bucket of a bunch of crap and yeah. because we don't know how to deal with it, we're just trying to not feel embarrassed. And I have this like weird rebellious streak in me where like, if you tell me not to do something, my instinct is to do it more. So yeah. when I was kind of regulating how I want to think about my emotions and how I want to relate to them. I like purposefully would start thinking about things that would make me emotional, like at the gym. So I'd be like sobbing, blowing my nose, like (laughs) in the middle of a workout. And like, people would look at me and I'm like, look, I'm normalizing this. It's what it is, what it is. Like, if you want to feel bad for me or be embarrassed for me because I'm crying, that's fine. But I'm not embarrassed to feel this. And yeah, the voices in my head, you know, they would say like, but you should be. But I know that like I ultimately command my mind. So I get to choose which voice like I listen to and which voice I believe. And I kind of rebelled against it because how are we supposed to be functional, adaptive, creative, innovative, loving humans if we can't feel safe, which is the word you use. I love that word to just feel what we're feeling. And on the other side of that, you know, because it's been so hammered into our head that something's wrong with emotions that we don't look at the stuff that even creates the emotions. Like my favorite thing is with like married couples or not even married couples, just couples when, you know, typically it's the male in a, you know, specific relationship where they leave a towel on the ground or socks near the hamper, whatever. And the women get so enraged by it. Why? Was he purposely leaving the towel there being like, I don't care what she thinks. I'm going to piss her off on purpose. Probably not. (laughs) No. But 
we're also yelling at them about the thing that we're not actually upset about. What does it represent? My husband's thing was dishes. For me, it made me feel disrespected. It made me feel like he didn't value my time. And when I told him that, he was like, of course I value your time. I'm like, you're not showing me that though. If you want me to understand that, you need to show me that. And as soon as he understood it, he like started doing it. But like, we don't, we're not taught to communicate like that. And so, you know, people say you're too much when they are feeling overwhelmed. People say you're not doing enough when they need more, not necessarily from you, but like we, we are so exterior instead of like reflective and understanding that we really have lost command of our mind in a lot of different ways. And I believe the way to regain it is to befriend your mind, to listen, to give your emotions the space to have a voice and say what they need to say and be heard and not necessarily in like a highly reactive way, but like we all are our own inner child and our parents did the best they could. Most of them likely screwed some of us up because we have an undeveloped mind. So we're not even going to understand what they're saying correctly. Right. But our power lies in claiming that responsibility now and being brave enough to consider like, why am I bothered by that? Why does that sock on the floor piss me off? Why does that person getting a promotion over me frustrate me? Did I even tell anyone I wanted that promotion? Why am I so mad at myself that I keep going to food when I'm feeling uncomfortable? Okay, I don't have anything else I know how to go to. So what do I need to do? Like, we don't know how to take care of ourselves. We know how to distract ourselves and avoid from ourselves. But that's what I really believe is creating this depression, anxiety, stress, you know, ball that we all live in. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I think we, we're just doing the best we can with what we've got, you know, passed down from generations to generations of people that aren't sure how to handle things. So it's, you know, no one's fault. It's just kind of, but when you kind of find like, I need something else, I'm tired of like this, this rat race of, you know, going and going and, um, you know, just not really having an answer for it can be overwhelming. And, you know, part of the reason that I wanted to bring you on to talk to you today is because I, I typically work with people that have chronic pain or mystery pain, but the type of work that I do is very mind-body connection. And we have to be able to feel in order to heal. And it sounds so cliche, but it's so true in, mm-hmm. in so many different ways. And so many of the people I work with are disconnected from their bodies, um, at least in some capacity, maybe not completely, but because of traumas or, you know, injuries or just things that are too painful and difficult to look at, we tend to dissociate part of our body with that. And so um, I, I have a surprisingly a lot of people that will reach out to me to talk about or to have um, to see if what I do myofascial release will help them with emotional eating. And mm-hmm. it's fascinating to me because that's not in my wheelhouse, but I do understand that there is definitely a mind body connection, but I'm, I can't decide if you're going to stop emotionally eating just by getting body work. I mean, it it will probably help you on your journey, but um, that is not going to be the end all be all. Like you'll just start feeling your feelings and then you're going to stop eating. (laughs) That's just, that's not how it works. It's not because it's, I mean, we are complex beings. So our problems are complex. 
Yeah. Um, yes, I agree that like releasing some of that can be an assist. But I think as someone who, you know, specializes with people who deal with emotional eating, you know, the main thing people focus on is the eating. They blame the eating, the food. I'm like, it's the first part is the part you're missing, the emotional. That's that's the cause that's making you cope with the food. And it's coping. And a lot of us didn't learn how to cope in a healthy way and how to bring ourselves back into that rest and digest, heal and feel system. That is the, you know, the parasympathetic system versus the stress is the sympathetic system. If we recover in the rest and digest system, the heal and feel system, that's when we can regulate ourselves. But it's really starts at like giving yourself some space to feel your stuff without judgment. If you need to go in a bathroom stall and cry or go to your car and cry or write something down or cry in a gym, like, or not cry and just like think things through and ask yourself questions, like actually get to know the internal environments that's making you think that food is the solution. Because the reality is our emotions create a hormonal chemistry experience in us. Our brain has been now conditioned to understand food when consumed also has a chemistry response, fixes, quote unquote, dilutes the prior chemistry and makes us feel better. And that is what we call dopamine. I mean, I could argue that emotional eating is its own addiction because we're soothing, like drinkers drink when they're feeling stuff they don't want to feel. People who use drugs typically are doing it when they're going to feel something they don't want to feel. We use food when we're trying to feel something we don't want to feel. But the reality is, you know, I like to shift a perspective. You know, we, we categorize things as our comfort zone and our discomfort zone, but I could easily call that our experienced zone and our inexperienced zone. That's all our comfort zone and discomfort zone is. So when we think about this sadness or the fear or the anxiety that we experience, we aren't experienced in dealing with it. We are experienced in avoiding it. We do know how to name it and go away from it. And that is what's in our comfort zone. And that is how we tend to respond. And when we avoid it, we're avoiding it typically with food, which is its own chemistry space, which is why like going for a walk and doing those things are restorative, but your body wants the chemistry, your body wants the dopamine. And that's why so many people struggle with kicking that addiction is because they're looking at the food as a problem rather than the emotion and learning to experience the actual emotion and befriend the emotion and get the data your body is trying to communicate. Like hunger, technically an emotion. We don't argue with that. When we feel hungry, we're like, okay, that is hunger and I'm going to eat something. That's not the only time we eat, but we don't argue that when we need to go to the bathroom, we're not like, "Mm, do I really need to go to the bathroom? Or like, did I like, we don't contemplate those messages from our body. Emotions are the body's way of communicating needs, communicating you're not feeling seen, communicating you're not feeling respected, communicating that you're not standing up for yourself or that you're disrespecting yourself. And instead of hearing it, we just beat ourselves down, push it away with food and then rinse and repeat. So, you know, it is hard. 
like I use the word addiction very purposely because it is a chemistry experience inside of us. And for anyone who is trying to heal their emotional eating, I incredibly urge you to start at the emotions and not at the food because the two hardest addictions uh, to cure or kind of overcome, so to speak, according to Dr. Lemke at Stanford, are food and screens, because those are the two things that we need most in our life. Like you don't have to drink alcohol to survive. You do have to eat food. You don't have to do drugs to survive. In today's day and age, you likely need to look at a screen. So these are the things that we're having. We can't go cold turkey on that we're having to heal the relationship with. And it starts by experience. As soon as you start to experience your own emotions, they stop feeling so dang uncomfortable. It stops that hurricane chemistry that makes you feel you need the food to begin with. And then this weird twist that things happens where, you know, emotions can be heavy sometimes. You know, my dad was in the hospital. I lasted like three days. I did all the things on my coping menu. And then I went to a cold stone. I came back ready to emotionally numb. I had about three bites and then I threw it in the trash. My husband was like, what? That is good ice cream. What are you doing? I was like, it's not working. It's like, what do you mean it's not working? It's ice cream. And I'm like, I didn't want the ice cream. I wanted the comfort. And as soon as I knew, like created the distinction that sadness is sadness and ice cream isn't going to make sadness go away. It's just going to make me bloated and farty, <laughs> right. which is just real. Yeah. I realized like, this isn't going to, this isn't helping me. If anything, it's just going to make me bloaty, farty and sad, which is going to make my situation worse, not better. But because we're so scared to yeah. face the uncomfortable emotions which are the inexperienced emotions, we keep shoving them away with food. And then we look at food as the problem. Yeah. Do you think people can even decipher what those emotions are that they're trying to push away? How do they even kind of decipher what emotions they're trying to push away? Do you have a, a way to, to unearth I do. them? Yeah. I do. I call it the feeling wheel. I have it like, favorited in my phone. Every single one of my clients has it. You can literally Google the feeling wheel. It has a variety of feelings because, you know, we tend to summarize most of our emotional dialect with happy, sad, good, bad, mad, stress, yeah. or stress in there too, right? Yeah. But what does that mean? Like, if you think of good, if I came on and you said, hey, Laura, how are you? And I'm like, I'm good. That doesn't even register with your brain. Your brain's like, cool, that's normal. But right. if I'm, I'm elated, you're gonna be like, huh, why? That's cool. That later is so specific. It's like pinpoints like a specific point in your brain. And I used to use the word bothered. I'm just bothered. But what the heck does bothered mean? And the feeling wheel. And I tried some emotions on. And the reality was I was displeased. That's what I was feeling. And as soon as I realized and named the like the real emotion as displeased, I was like, oh, it just didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And I was able to release it and let go of the fictitious control I was trying to have. But yeah, I think naming is a very hard place to start because if you just say bad, I feel bad. I feel bothered. What the heck does it mean? It's like the sock on the floor. What's underneath? So Google the feeling wheel or message me and I'll send it to you. But 
when you're feeling something, look at it and try it on and be like, is this how I don't dictionary definition, Google search that it's, is this my understanding of this emotion? And you'll try a couple on and then one will fit, but it's like, okay, why do I feel that? And what am I making it mean? Like that is the key element is the unspoken meaning underneath every single thought, every single emotion. We stress ourselves out. We busyaholic ourselves because we make it mean we're good enough. Yeah. You know, so I definitely say like, ask yourself some questions, go to the feeling wheel and kind of get curious why that is even popping up for you. Like here's a step-by-step that I actually give my clients. Once they name the emotion, I ask them to define it to a five-year-old. Let's say a five-year-old saying all these things and you're like, oh, that's stress. This is what arises in you when, and then I make them finish the sentence. And for the argument's sake, I'll say stress is what arises in you when something you care about feels threatened. Let's go with. Okay. So then I plug in their scenario of whatever was making them feel stressed. Okay. What was the thing you're caring about? How people view me and what was the threat? Not getting the promotion or so-and-so getting the promotion. Okay. Now the whole reason this emotion is coming up is because we don't feel safe. So we're not going to be able to feel safe. But we can do something to feel safer. We can support ourselves. We can support our need. Okay, what's important is how people are perceiving me. I want to make sure people understand that I am equipped for these types of things. And clearly I didn't because Susie or whoever got the promotion. So what actions do I need to take to make sure the next promotion I can get because Susie got the promotion. You can stew in the discomfort all you want, but that's not going to help you. And if you think about where our emotional center is in our brain, it's literally in the motivational triad. It's in our limbic system, which is what drives us into motivation. So our emotions are intended to motivate us. We just haven't been taught to decode. So feeling real to name it, define it to your five-year-old, apply your situation, And then come up with as many options or actions as you can. Don't just do two, minimum of three, because we tend to go into either or thinking and decide which ones you want to do first to support yourself and get yourself to that next level. Hmm. That's what I do. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's a lot of good info right there. It's so complex, you know, when we start to think about it, if you've not ever done these types of things before, but once you start kind of doing it with something small, then you can kind of work your way into the the feelings or the emotions that maybe you aren't so familiar with, because there's a lot like on those feeling wheels, there's a lot of things that's like, oh, I typically stay in like, you know, these three or four, and they kind of flex back and forth between good, bad and mad, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so but there's like so many things that are in those emotions. And I I tend to look at like, what am I actually, why do I feel angry? And it's usually like, it's not really anger, it's sadness, or it's something that's deeper, but I've just categorized it, you know, at a broad spectrum, but there's actually way more things. If I actually look at like, why 
why do I feel like this? So yeah, like the sock on the floor, man, you can be pissed off about that. But when you start like looking back, maybe you haven't said anything for a very long time. Like there's a lot of pent up and now this one sock is just like set you over the edge. So (laughs) exactly. And I, I really appreciate what you said because you reminded me of one other thing that I think is important, which is kind of learning to scale your emotions, you know, because we're taught to avoid, ignore, distract, hide, resist, you pick your word. We kind of don't notice our emotions until they're at like a seven or eight on our scale. Yeah. And when things are seven or eight, it's much harder to manage that. Like we don't just go from peaceful to piss the heck off. Like it doesn't jump there. Right. Maybe we get annoyed and then maybe we get frustrated and then maybe we're irritated and then maybe we're kind of angry and then maybe we're like, are you really going to do that or whatever your next level is? But like, it's much easier to deal with things that frustrated, irritated or annoyed than piss the heck off. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that I found very, very helpful with clients is like helping them witness their two, their three, their four on the scale and teaching them how to kind of soothe that because that chemistry isn't as heavy as the seven or eight. That's a more powerful eruption. And I'm really happy you said that because learning to scale your emotions and you can even look at the feeling wheel. They kind of do it for you because it's like sadness. And then it like tears out in like two or three different sections of the other feelings you might have kind of connected to that. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a a practice or like a tip that can help people maybe connect to their mind body better? Do you have like, like a practice that you do that kind of helps bring you back into the body that you do? I love yoga nidra. So ah. I tried like, and I do meditation. Um, but what, when I'm like activated, which is what I call when I feel like any uncomfortable emotion my brain's like zipping around telling me all these different things. And I'm like trying to fact check it and it's just like too much. So I'll go and do yoga nidra and I have a minimum of 15 minutes that I've learned. Cause I've tried five minutes and the first five minutes, my brain's still zipping all over the place. So 15 minutes is kind of my minimum, but I really like that or like, you know, deep breathing where you're like really tuning into like all of your senses with like compression on like your chest to kind of simulate that, you know, hug or immune system soothe. But that's if I don't have the space or time to do yoga nidra, but yoga nidra is like my gold star. Yeah, I do like, geez, I can't talk yoga nidra. It's been really helpful for me too. It just kind of really helps bring, bring you back down and kind of ground you and Yeah. I think it's important to have those like somatic practices where we have a connection to our body and actually like witness, you know, maybe even feeling like those places that were holding the emotion. Sometimes I think that's important too, is like putting your hand, like, where do you notice that anger? Where does it live in your body? And then like touching it, like just acknowledging, like, I feel you there, like you're in my belly. And, you know, just having that mind body connection to where it lives so that when you start to feel that in your belly, you know, next time, you know, like, oh, this is where it's going to go if I let it get out of control. So maybe I can start feeling that before it's like at a seven or eight and I'm like screaming at someone. I love that. If you think about it, if a friend of yours is feeling sad, your instinct is to give them a hug, right? Yeah. So by like 
connecting to the where. And if you can't find a where, like I don't always find a where. Sometimes I find a where, sometimes I don't. Yeah. It just depends. But when you connect to the where and you can and you like touch it, I like putting a little pressure on it because to me, it simulates that like emotional hug that you would give to a friend, but it's being that for yourself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Like hand on heart's a good place to go. I think too, it just kind of brings that heavy awareness to your chest to kind of bring you back into that, that heart center too. So yeah, there's so many different things we could talk about it forever. We really there are so <laughs> many different things. Yeah. And this I, has like, been awesome. Yes. I love this. And like, I feel like if a previous version of me was listening to this, I'd be like, oh my God, there's so many great things. Where do I start? Yeah. And just see what works for you. If like yoga nidra isn't your thing, like try some belly breasts or try hugging like that part of your body. If, you know, going through the steps of the emotional healing isn't your thing, just start creating a scale and witnessing them and like distract earlier just to like not need to go to that extreme thing, like work with yourself wherever you are. And you kind of got to figure out what works for you, but yes, thank you so much for having me on because it has been outstanding. And I, our messages are just so synced. It's just like you go body forward, I go brain forward, but it's like the same goal. Right. So I really appreciated like connecting with you in general and being on here. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. And if people have uh, questions or they want to work with you or find you, where can they look you up? Uh, I am changed by challenge everywhere. My website is changed by challenge. My Instagram is changed by challenge. My Facebook, you get the idea. Uh, And the best way to kind of get a hold of me is typically through a message or DM on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, But if there is anyone who is struggling with that emotional eating or the stress addiction, please don't hesitate to reach out. I would love to give you a complimentary session to kind of help get you started and kind of go from there. Wonderful. That sounds great. I know that there are a lot of people listening that can benefit from this. And if not, there are people that they know that can benefit from this because I think we all struggle in in some ways with you know, food and uh, body image and mind body connection and all the things. So I will link all of that in the show notes so that people can look you up and they have any questions, they can reach out to you. But thank you again for being here. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I really am grateful. Thank you. Well, we'll see you on another episode of Return to Ease. Thanks for listening to Return to Ease. Before you go, show some love for this podcast by leaving a review. I'd love to hear from you and stay tuned for the next episode.